What is up, folks? Welcome back to another episode of the Repertoire Podcast. My guest today is Key Chung, and I want to—we we were gassing up our guests a little bit on these intros, and so Key is one of my first connections in the culinary world. Period. The CIA—we both went to school together, believe it or not. And CIA, when we got accepted, they—this was right when Facebook. This was like 2009, like right when Facebook was, you know, starting to get a little bit more connected and beyond just like being on college campuses. And so the head of enrollment, something like that, connected all of us students who were starting at similar stages into like a group together. And we could ask questions. We could talk about what we were excited about, why we chose CA, all of those sorts of things. And Key and I actually ended up doing like a little bit of private messaging together because I think we identified that like we were both interested in fine dining. He had posted something in the group about like he was planning on doing a stage at French Laundry. This was back when stages were still allowed. And I was just like mind blown. I was like, holy cow, like I got to get in touch with this guy. And so we ultimately ended up becoming friends because my roommate at the time grew up on the East Coast. Like when I got to CIA, I my first weekend, I basically was like alone in my dorm room. And I was like, well, I guess I'm alone, but but maybe I'm not, you know, because I have this Facebook group that I became a part of. And so I just decided to go in there and message Key. And he was like, yeah, come over to my dorm. He was like two, two buildings down from me. Ultimately ended up meeting uh, his roommate, who was Hubert. You, you folks might know him as a previous guest on the show. He was like my sous chef when I had the event production company here. And he ultimately was like my best man at my wedding. Hubert was, not, not Key. And so Key and I have just been kind of like you know, just internet friends, I would say, you know, after school, we staged together in New York. We talk about that in this conversation. He, you know, ultimately got a leadership role at Aubergine in Carmel in California, ultimately getting them their first Michelin star. He was on the team for what, when that happened. Uh, he's worked at places like Comey in Oakland. And now he's the executive chef of Bar Maze in Hawaii. And so we just get deep into talking about like being nervous as a professional, some, you know, just general kind of like career progression moments that, that were valuable for him. And then ultimately how he's trying to build a better culture inside of his restaurant. And so if you want to follow Key, you want to check out Bar Maze or any of the specific linkable things that we discussed, please do check out the show notes or they're always available at joinrepertoire.com in the blog section where we post these episodes. And if you're familiar, we'll also post transcripts. And so if it's valuable for you to kind of like follow along to a, you know, we'll call it, it's an editing platform generated transcript. So don't, you know, count on it to be too accurate, but that is also just a benefit and something new that we're rolling out with these episodes. And so let's talk to Key. You're probably no stranger to being on your feet while you work. And Mies believes that the footwear needs of the culinary industry have long been overlooked. And that changes right now because they have a line of shoes called the Standard, which has a pretty compelling feature in that they're actually two pieces. Yes, these shoes come apart, believe it or not. You gotta have to see it to understand it fully. A flexible and sustainable foam insole is what the part that touches your foot. And then the outside is a gold rated leather and non-slip outer. And that insole is is completely washable. We also did a bunch of tests on that outer to see if we could get it to stain. And spoiler alert, we used flour, we used melted butter, we used a carrot puree, we used a bunch of stuff and it just didn't work. It just wiped right right off. It was pretty impressive. And I actually published a full review of these shoes on the Justin Kana YouTube channel. So if you want to get more information on the shoes, you want to check those out and see if there's maybe a discount code. I think those went pretty quickly, but I made the video to be as comprehensive as possible. So if you're in the market for a new pair of kitchen shoes, I'd love for you to to check that out after this episode and thank you so much to Mies for sponsoring the show key it's awesome to see you after so long i gave it in the intro that we're gonna we went to school together and it's been ages since we caught up how are you maybe to I'm, start i'm doing really good like i feel happy healthy 
like, like, and like, I feel like I'm in a good place in life right now. That's good. We're going to get into why that is the case, but as a fun way to kind of let the listener get to know you a little bit, and considering you and I haven't caught up in ages, it seems like, I figured we'd go through some checkpoints in your career, and then you can share some highlights from individual times that I bring up, and the listener can kind of get some insight from that, because I think a lot of folks still utilize the path that you and I went down, and step in the same footprints that we used, and you and I didn't create these, we stepped in the footprints of other people before us, Mm -hmm. and so I think we agree on a lot, too, you and I. It's the reason that we took the path that we took. But I also think we might disagree on certain points. So that might make for some, you know, kind of engaging conversation. Sort of kind of frame the first part of this interview. That's where I wanted to take things. So I hope that sounds good. Yep. So to start, I want to talk about staging because literally the way that you and I became friends, if you don't remember, I certainly do, is because pre-CIA, you staged at French Laundry, which yep. when I became a student, I was like, holy shit, like this guy is coming into CIA hot with like three Michelin star experience. And this was like right before French Laundry stopped doing stages. And so I don't think I've ever expressed this in a piece of content before, but like your courage to go to French Laundry before school ultimately gave me the confidence to start to ask for stages at that point in in, in our education. So maybe start with like your take on stages and then I can do some follow-ups. Yeah. So before, you know, knowing I went to, well, when I first found out that I wanted to cook, I just did. I was like obsessed. I read every book, any information online, which at the time was scarce. I just Can you to find... give some shout outs there? Like Ulterior Epicure was like a big... For sure. You know, for us. He was the only one. He was the only yeah. one that was had any information on restaurants or anything. The Anthony Bourdain book, the Daniel Blue book, the uh, Grand Atkins book. Like all those basically said the same thing. If you're a young chef, get your foot in the door no matter what. It's like now it's like, I guess they would call it like a hustler mentality. It's like... Right. You, if they... You email them a million times. If they ignore you, show up at the doorsteps and be like, I want to work today. Like, I'll do whatever it takes, you know? At the time, I was like, that's what I did. I was so obsessed. Like, I would, like, show up to the doorsteps and be like, can I work today? They say no. I show up the next day. You know, eventually, someone's going to call out sick or someone's going to doesn't happen and be like, you know what? Just let them in. Just have them pick herbs. Like, go put them in the corner or whatever. So, like, that's how I got my foot in the door. And, uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned, like, always coming in hot, but like, you know, when you're staging at that level, you're not doing anything, anything even like worth mentioning, really. It's like, you're learning right. the discipline, you're learning the, yeah. all that stuff, but you're not like, you're not a good cook, not even slightly. So yeah. it's like, it's just good for the discipline. I don't know what stage culture is now, like now, but I'm sure it's, I think it's good for the discipline. It's also good to have that mentality. Like I want it, I think. Yeah, that's just, it was a fun time for me. I think maybe I went a little too hard on it sometimes, but yeah, it's a good, it's a good memory for me. Why, why do you say that? Do you think that it gave you, made you jaded towards fine dining or, you know, gave you too, too clean of a view early on? Like it took away a little bit of the magic or? I, I think I, you know, when you're like cooking, you always think you're going to be better. You want to be better. But like, I think when you start too long, you delay a little bit of the actual cooking. So I feel like I should have started cooking a little, I should have taken a job at a, as a line cook somewhere else, maybe somewhere less, you know, less, you know, refined, but more like grind and like learn the aspect of cooking a little earlier. Because when it's a little bit later and then you are like kind of like influenced by so much stodge, like so much of that work, it's hard. It's so hard. I think that that's the the point you brought up there, which Danielle talks about in the Letters to a Young Chef book, is that that's the quote, right? Is that like you learn more cleaning lobsters in a three-star kitchen or whatever that quote is versus, you know, cooking the grill at, you know, a, a bistro. And I think that that's the important thing for maybe the listener to take away is that when you have this environment that teaches you that, that's something you can deposit into your career 
and that can start to compound for you. Yeah. Whereas everybody else is focused on like all these fancy techniques or whatever. And then because you have the ability to like, say work clean or move quickly or, you know what I mean? Communicate yeah. I don't, that can work in your favor while everybody else is floundering around with other stuff. Yeah. My, okay. my cooks right now, you know, they, they're all from here. Like I didn't bring Got anybody it. It's all yeah. from here and they don't really have that background. So like, it's kind of reversed for them. They're going from like kind of the turn and burns into a fine dining place. But obviously they chose, they knew what they were going into and they, they were willing to change. And that's such a weird and different mentality because it's like they know what to do, but they don't know how to do it. Like how to do it in the fashion that I want it. And that's right. it's such a hard thing to switch to. Like you almost have to remind them for them, like, hey, wipe, hey, like this stuff on the floor, like pick it up. Like it's like they're so used to it and your brain's not wired. It's like the early wiring helps a lot, you know? Yep. I'm going to actually pop that in my notes here because I want to, I want to circle back on that, but I, I don't want to leave staging yet because I want to stay at that point in your career. Yeah. So, so you and I would stage together, like for the listener, yeah. he and I would, we would take the train down to Manhattan from CIA. We would, I, I'm almost positive we'd get a burrito at Chipotle together yeah. and then we would go off and do our stages. Yeah. So sometimes we would go together. I think like at Boulay, you and I went and stage together, mm -hmm. but there were certain days where like you would go off and do your stage and I would, you know, we would fist bump each other at Chipotle and be like, you're going to go to Midtown and I'm going to go to Soho or whatever. And it was like, we're going to just do our stages and, and then whatever. For someone who is sitting at that Chipotle right now, they're eating their burrito. We're in their ears right now. They have a stage coming up in two hours. Yeah. What advice do you have for them? Oh, man. Oh, man. I know when I was sitting in that Chipotle, I was nervous as all hell. It was so scary to walk into a kitchen with intimidating cooks and, you know, just walking in like young calling school kids. You know, that typical advice is, right, like just put your head down, listen to what they say and work hard. But, you know, I think and I don't know how to like convey this. I think you were a little bit more successful in your stages than I was because... You, so? you had like a certain person, you had like an outgoing personality and you were mm -hmm. bubbly, whereas I was terrified and I just kept my head down. And so like, you know, you have to still make an impact of some sort. I'm not saying be like overly annoying or obnoxious or anything, but like you were very good at just being like engaging the cooks, kind of like asking about that. Cause you know, they're busy, but they still, it's something different. And like, you know, the new guys coming in and they're like asking you questions, you know, it's, if you can engage them a little bit and it's, if you do it in a way that they're not used to, you know, every cook's going to come and be like, what's that? What's that? It's like, or every stage. But if you ask them like a meaningful question or, you know, something, it might be, it might, you might get more from it and they might get more from you. Like they might be like, this guy's actually kind of cool. And I would say, I regret not being like, I regret being so shy and being so scared because in the end, yeah, in the end, you're, you're free help. Yep. Yep. I mean, what helped me and, and I know you did this too. I think it's like, it's, it's, it's a, again, benefit for the listener here is like you and I would do research on what the restaurant menu was. Right. So like a lot of people don't do that. A lot of people just go in blind to a stage and they just have no idea what's on the menu, what's in season, what the chef is excited about, what the food blogger that came in two weeks ago is excited about eating. Yep. And that little bit, it's it, it's 10 minutes of research, man. Yeah. You know what I mean? Almost every single restaurant posts their menu online in some way, shape, or form. And so, yeah, that's that's, that's at, great advice. At uh, Le Bernardin, I think we did that one together. Yeah. I asked, um, I, I told the, I told one of the cooks, the one, I think it was a sous chef, actually. Um, he was making the tuna and the foie. Yeah. And I was like, I was like, I can't believe I'm seeing that in real life. And he like laughed and chuckled because he does it every day. You know, he's just, right, he's just right. banging it out. And then like, yeah. when he heard me say that, he was like, kind of like, what's wrong with you? But also kind of like laughing, like. That's cool, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's tight. With all the news that's come out, we had 
Blaine Wetzel on his stagiaire program, the Noma, Noma stagiaire program, as I was talking about, like you were one of the last like stages at French Laundry before they shut it all down. Have you changed your mind on staging in light of some of the recent news? Are you more bullish on it than ever? Where, 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 where's your head at with staging for the person who is relatively unexperienced? Well, at this current like state, when you know cooks are that hard to come by, it's like I think I don't think it's necessary. I mean, no, there's so much demand for cooks. I'm sure people will take anyone. I did I did wrestle with that like kind of hard because like my initial thought was those long term stages are so insane to work for free for that long. But especially in these in one of the places you know the places that we would want to get are in big cities where it's really expensive. And but then you know I was at Manresa for like almost half a year and I just dodge basically. And for, it was unpaid, but like all the stuff I got from Enresa, I thought was worth it because, and I actually remember David Kinch coming in, coming in at the end of my shift and like, I, you know, I improved way more than I started. And he was like, this is why like those short, like one month dodges are BS because look how much you improved. And I remember thinking like, oh yeah, that is cool. And then now that I'm a chef, I'm a little bit more jaded about it. I'm like, like, I don't think I would take a long-term stodge ever, even if like, they came to the door and asked for it. Like, I would have to hire them. I just, right. I don't, I do, at a certain point, I did think it was important. And I know other industries do unpaid work to get, you know, but I just don't think it's necessary anymore. I think it's always in, in comparison to what is kind of where my head goes. Because, you know, I, I tell the story <clears> of like, imagine if Facebook would let you just come in and just like sit and watch the people building the back end of the app and just like let you get in and write some code for yeah. the day. You'd be like, shut up. Like that, th- there's no way yeah. that that's going to happen. But in our industry, it totally happens. Mm-hmm. You know, you can like get the recipe for the fried hollandaise from Wiley Dufresne's line cooks and just, you know, like back when WD-50 was a thing. And that I think is just such an underrated thing. And I, I love that you called out like so many of the experience, these experiences are what you make them because you and I probably have interacted with so many cooks in our careers where it's just a come in, clock in, clock out. Don't ask questions. Don't form a relationship with the like you have a relationship with David Kinch at the end of that. Yeah. It might not be like your best friends or you're texting each <clears throat> other every day, but like he has your email in his inbox. Yeah. So if you ask him for something in four years, he at least knows who you are. And so that that I think gets missed with a lot of people. And and they, and they think of it just as oh I'm a herb picker, I'm a glorified whatever yep. Brunoise cutter. You know when in when in reality it's like there's so much benefit that can be gained from that. And I think if we were to like chart it out like time spent. And then value provided, you know, there would be kind of like an inflection point where it's like, okay, if you're staying here for three months, you're not really extracting that much more value. But it's like, if you only stay for two days, it's kind of like, well, you maybe didn't spend enough time here. Yeah, no, for sure. And like, it's totally right. Like, I only spent like less than six months at Menresa, and Kinch still remembers. I, yep. went, I went to eat at Menresa, and he came up to our table. And, you know, like, it's actually kind of funny because he didn't go to any other table that day. And people were wondering, like, who is that guy? Yeah. It's like, that was, it's just a guy that used to work there for five months. <laughs> but it's yeah. like, you know, stuff like that. It's like, for me, that's that's a huge value. Like, huge. Totally. Totally. So we can talk about Manresa if you want. I wanted to talk about your time at Comey uh, yeah. in, in Oakland. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that was one of your kind of, like, formative chef de partie kind of, like, experiences. Yes. Right? Yes. So... You were with Chef James. What did that experience kind of impart on you? <clears throat> kind of talk talk the listener through kind of like going from culinary school student to like really getting into the dirt there. Yep. What were some takeaways, some lessons, some kind of like maybe impactful stories? I know the listener really likes to hear like intense days of service or like moments when you feel like you really push through an obstacle. Talk to, talk to us a little bit about your time at Comey. My time at Comey was hard. 
but it was hard for like a very different reason. It's funny because the name is Komi, but the chef de parties, they're all basically, they're all chef de parties. It's a small kitchen. Are no Komi's, basically. There are no Komi's, yeah. And you do everything. You have two dishes, you do every step of it, which is really cool. And I know a lot of restaurants do do that, but this is my first time like experiencing it. And I started on Meat Station, which is like the end goal. And I was nervous as hell. Like I didn't even, I don't even think I touched meat cooking at all before yeah so I, why would why would you right? yeah exactly like in stage positions yeah and yeah. for the listener i hope you're realizing a little bit of the details that key is highlighting here so things that as you go to an interview or a, a trail if it's a working interview or even if when i bring up in a piece of content you should look for details in how a restaurant is set up and operates on the day-to-day that get you excited any of if any of the dot points that key's bringing up here are like oh my goodness, that, that is totally missing from where I'm working. And it would be crazy for me to try to get set up in a quick manner while being quiet. Like, I don't know how to do that. There are kitchens who operate in this way. And I think just hearing these stories key is like valuable for someone to hear, especially like if they're early on and they're thinking about kind of like, what kind of kitchen do I go into? And I get that question all the time from people who are like, well, I've been in this kind of sheltered culinary school environment and I don't really know what to look for in a kitchen. And so as these stories come through, like it might seem, you know, just kind of like off the cuff for you and I, cause we've been in this industry for so long, yeah. but for the newbie, it's like, it's really, really valuable. What I, what I wanted to ask you as a follow-up here is I remember when you and I were talking about like, what our first kitchen was going to be out of culinary school. I distinctly remember you wanting to prioritize a place where the chef owner was like, not just on the pass, but ideally like on the line almost yeah. every single night. And I think James at, at, at Comi gave that to you. Can you talk a little bit about why that was important to you in a, in a job? You know, I think this was after Manresa, right? Or was that? Yeah, yeah so I think, I think so. It, it was, you know, at Manresa, I loved working with the chef de cuisine, JP. He was amazing. He was like my role model. I wanted to be just like him. And as much as that was true, and I saw him as like, like, the, like top of the top, there was the stuff that when Kinch comes in and he pushes you or he makes you think about something or he tells you what he's passionate about, like a, and then like a certain dish that he was inspired by. And he would tell me like just a stodge, like, you know, I picked this this morning or the tidal pool dish. He's like, I went to the tidal pool and I saw this and this and this. Like stuff like that is so impactful when you're young. And then you see the vision of that restaurant, of that menu. So it's like, it's like a direct, you're getting it from the source, you know, like, if he's coming in every day and he's like that motivated and that excited, it makes me motivated and excited. And as much as JP was great, like he couldn't have done that at that restaurant. So for that reason, I, like, I just wanted to go to a place where the chef was there and he was coming in and he wanted to like work the line. I could, I could like see his passion because it's so like you could feel in the air, you know, I mean, ter- you're terrified for stuff. But the reward, the, the trade off is that you're that, like the passion kind of runs through the whole team, you know. And for the listener too, getting a sense of are you doing that enough for your team? Like if you're a manager and the last time that you talked about your philosophy was seven months ago, yeah. it's any wonder you're probably worried about your staff's motivation. Okay. So I want to, I want to keep going here. So how long, how long did you spend at Comey? And then, and then did you go into Aubergine <clears throat> as a manager or were you kind of like a chef de partie when you started at Aubergine? I was about, I was at Comey for about a year and then I actually helped them open their, they opened a restaurant in, I'm not too great with my location in, in okay. Oakland, but they opened, yeah. they opened another restaurant and I helped them with that for a little bit. And then, you know, at that point, I was kind of burnt out. Yeah. When I say it was like a traditional kitchen, it was like, it was like 15 hours a day. And it was like mm-hmm. nonstop. And, you know, for a whole year, you're just terrified about the, about the next day. 
getting stuff on done on time. And I was still so young, but I was like, oh no, like is this like am I regretting this? You know. And you know, we, I think every every cook goes through that at least once. If you don't, I, I mean, props to you. But I had the same thing, man. I get it. So actually, I did front of the house for a bit. I just had to. Uh, I thought I would go into wine. So I was kind of shadowing the wine person that called me, and then when I opened, when I helped them with the other place, I did front of the house. It was only for how was that? It was really fun, actually. Like it was different. I was learning a lot, and I got to kind of in with guests in a different way, not as like a, just like a you know me cook. You know, I got to like kind of learn how to like joke with people and when not to touch some, you know, not to like talk too much with one table. Like I really enjoyed it. And then you know, the whole mentality is very different, right, with the front of the house team and the back of the house, especially if it's like a more casual place. It was really fun, but I realized during that time that they want to get back in the kitchen, and actually they put me in the kitchen at that restaurant. <laughs> but yeah, and then what was the original question? Did you get brought in as a manager, or or did you start as kind of like a chef to party and then work your way up? I started out as a komi, basically. Yeah, so I went from basically komi to chef de cuisine in the span of seven years. Crazy. Yeah, I was. Talk, talk, yeah, talk about that experience. Yeah, so okay, so I was burnt out, and I also just came. I also just came off of working front of the house, and I didn't know like where I stood, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna give this fine dining thing one more chance. So I stopped at three places, and the other two were pretty similar, just a little bit more intense, maybe. And then I, when, I remember when I drove down to Aubergine and I like, I, I kind of hit that curve where I saw the beach and I was like, whoa, this is beautiful. Like it's one of the most beautiful places in the world, Carmel, Big Sur area. But I remember just seeing that beautiful site, parking near the restaurant, kind of walking into like sand and like seagulls, you can hear it. And, and then I go in the kitchen, only the chef and like one cook is there. And that cook just came in from like wearing beach clothes and she brought in like this like little tray of all locally foraged like little flowers and herbs and they seem so relaxed and like like they know what they're about but then like it wasn't like an, it was like still a hard-working kitchen but it was just so different and i was like like i think i'm in love with this place like it was so cool i go downstairs there's a fish tank with abalone and like seaweed and crab i'm like what is like what is this place it's so crazy and i just remember like work like dodging there the first day and it was like everyone was happy they weren't afraid to like talk not to, like talk to me I should say, explain everything. Like it was a whole different experience from what I was used to. And I was so in love with that. Just like, yeah, that was just like, immediately I was like in love with that place. Quick 20 second mirror to how my experience was because it is shockingly similar to what you're talking about. So got burnt out at French Laundry, went to work at a butcher shop in the front of the butcher shop for three months. Immediately got that moment where I was like, okay, I feel what an eight-hour day feels like compared to a 14-hour yeah. day. This is so much more relaxed. Oh, my goodness. I'm not getting, like, a, a paid lunch break where I can sit down for 30 minutes. This is crazy. But I had that moment where I was like, oh, my goodness. I, I want to give fine dining a try one more time. I went to Norway. Yeah. You went to Carmel. And I did the same thing where I, like, I, I started on an entremet station because the, the team was so small. There was only four cooks. I, I think you guys were probably around the same yep. time. But we didn't have any comies at at, at least for it. And then I became executive sous chef. So it was like, it's, that's so funny that like this, like, oh, and the thing that I wanted to ask you about on this, b because of why it was so interesting for me to go to Norway in comparison to <clears throat> going back to New York, going back to Chicago, trying to f find out another, you know, even European city that was more on the fine dining map, like Copenhagen. What attracted me to the restaurant in Norway so much was the fact that they didn't have any Michelin stars. And Aubergine, if I'm, unless I'm wrong, was the same. Yep. Was there something there to going into a restaurant that didn't have Michelin stars in comparison to one that did have them that was attractive to you or that you would kind of give to, as advice to someone? No, 100%. It was, it was definitely one of the factors. It's like you, like, I, I feel like 
when you work at a mission star or a restaurant, where, where if you're in a place where you get reviewed, you feel the need to follow a certain step, a certain like you have to have this, you have to have these. Like it's like you let go of all that. It sounds intense because you're actually cooking for the guest. Like there's no stars, you're cooking for the guest. The guest come in and you're just doing the best for that. As opposed to cooking for the guide, maybe, right? Would be the and as, as much as chefs like to say that they don't, they do. Like and and they should. Like it's a very important guide. But you know, guest comes first. And I think when you do focus on that, the intensity is a little different. It's, th- it's still the same, but it's a little different. You know, it's not as like, uh, I just feel like it's a little bit less one-sided. And that was a huge factor for me, like just kind of let going, letting go of that mission. Because, you know, when coming out of culinary school, you and I were like, we're working at the best restaurant. We're working at three mission stars. I'm going to have a three mission star restaurant. And, you know, and then you get to see all these different points of views. And then you kind of like, you know, follow what you feel is right. For me, it was at what cost yeah it was like oh well i'm gonna have to like trample people over i'm gonna have to like burn people out i'm gonna have to come up with a a, either a ton of money myself or find an investor who's i'm i'm gonna be beholden to this person now again to your point about the guest it's like i'm not my business is no longer for the guest it's like returns for my investor at this Mm -hmm. point in time or or worse you have the investor who is like you're just cooking for their friends all the time like there's so many dynamics at play in fine dining that you know for movies like the menu coming out or finally coming to light for people, it has been a crazy like 18 months of food media. Yeah. But going going back to aubergine time, can you talk a little bit about when when you go and, and officially get that management position for the first time? I have so many people who ask that question of, I'm going from contributor to the one managing the contributors. And I certainly had a lot of whiplash when I got that asked for the first time. Did you experience the same? Whiplash from the team? Yeah, from the team or from yourself. For like the way that it felt for me and the way that I describe it to people is I got the knife taken out of my hand and I got handed a clipboard. And it was like, whoa, this is weird because I'm so used to valuing my contribution to this operation by my ability to make sauces or my ability to butcher or my ability to get set up on time or my ability to plate. And it's kind of like, it's not like you're not doing that anymore, but the metrics by which your ju- your success is judged change when you become a manager. Yeah. And that really fucked with me. I guess that's what, that's my question is, did it fuck with you too? It did, but in a different way. Like, you know, I, I don't feel like I thought that way about like the clipboard thing until now, like when I actually became a chef. Like it's so much harder to just, it's so like cooking, you've realized, actually James said this to me recently. He was, he said, cooking is the easy part when you become a chef. Like all you want to do is cook, but you never can now. And I, I haven't felt that way until now. But when I was at Aubergine, it was easy transition for me because I think I put in the work to prove that I was worthy of being a sous chef. You know, like I would help people with their prep. I would make dishes for the menu. Like I would just try my best to prove that I was a manager and that you would like me as a manager. What ended up happening though was that, you know, people always say like, you can't expect them to be as good as you because that's the reason you got promoted. And, you know, when people would mess up, I would get very, very upset. I would, I, and I was like, usually I'm not that upset in the kitchen until it hits like a certain point. And at a certain point I was like, it hits so much. I was like, okay, this is not good. Like, you know, I don't want to be that person and I don't want to get this angry because I'm literally like shaking. I have to like walk outside and just like, you know, just like uncontrollable anger. And it's like, that was the hard part for me as a manager. Everything else kind of came, you know, I learned, I learned through the steps. The, the funny thing about this is like, Justin Cogley was so patient with me throughout this whole step. Like from me being a sous chef, to me being a chef de cuisine, he was so patient with me, let me make my mistakes. And obviously my cooks also let me make the mistakes, which I'm super grateful for. But just, that was the hardest part for me. Everything else kind of, you know, you, you learn and you kind of grow. And I was, you know, I was, the one thing I think my 
strong trait is I'm really adaptable. So I feel like I was able to change for the better relatively quickly. But, you know, it's, it's always like steps, little baby steps that you take every day. If you and I were to sit at the counter at Comey or, you know, I, I haven't been to Aubergine, so I don't know how clearly you can see the kitchen from when you're sitting sit, seated and having a meal. But I think that, you know, it'd be fun for you and I to do this in the future. But let's say hypothetically we were to do it like right after this conversation. Yeah. And we're looking at one of the line cooks who's just like crushing it. Yeah. Like they're clearly on top of their shit. Can you describe, because I have this this question come from people who are like, how do I stand out at work? Or how do I like be a visible high performer yeah. in my kitchen environment? If we see someone who's crushing it, can you maybe like put yourself in that hypothetical and describe what you're seeing with someone who is like just on their station? And I, I call it total station domination, yeah. but like, what are you seeing when, when you see someone operating at that level? I mean, at that level, it's like no extra steps whatsoever, nothing extra on the station whatsoever. You have exactly what you need. Every move is calculated. You have no, like, you're not standing there and you're setting it up. So you don't even have to think. You just like, right. you just dance, you just move left and right. And there's no, nothing extra. And like, you know, the people that do crush it, like total do station domination, they're, they're built in a way that's like, they're like, they're so minimal that, and then they work so efficiently that it's like, you almost feel like you can like, you're, they're helping everyone around them too. Just because just they're so like, like, it's like so natural, so elegant, like just like, they're like moving so like fast, like not fast, it's just like, it's like a dance. And yeah, it's just like people, when you think about it, you can set it up so like, even to the point where it's like, the spoons are set on your right hand because you're right-handed and then the left hand has this. Like you, when you set up your station, it's just like, you can see it and you can see the thought process. It's like, I wouldn't do it that way, but the way they do it, it makes sense for them. It's, it's really cool to see. And I, I do like tell my cooks all the time, like this is how I would set it up, but you should set it up to how you should do it. You know, like, Huge. yeah. Yep. hundred percent. And, and, and that is also something that you learn over time. Yeah. That, and that's to your adaptability piece, where it's like you have to sometimes get in somebody else's car and drive it and acknowledge like their mirrors are here and they decided to position their seat in this way because they're kind of a little bit short yeah. and their steering wheels like up here. And then it's like it's not that you can step into someone else's station setup and crush it the same way that they can. And that's what I think like that, that's what I try to teach, man. It's like. You, you can you can have these principles like you're talking about, like nothing extra. So if you look at your station right now and you have like a gajillion extra ninth pans on your station, just in case, yeah. it's like, why are those there? Do you know what I mean? Like, this is not necessary. You should probably put those back in dish. Yep. Anything else stand out there about like your time as a chef to party? Because I want to talk about Barmaze next, but in that aubergine <clears throat> kind of chapter, anything stand out there? Or maybe talk about what it was like to get the Michelin star. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the, the good thing about, you know, the, the thing about Aubergine, which I really, really loved, was that there's always events and there's always something to keep things exciting. It's not like you come in, clock in and do your best and then leave. There's like an event happening every month and all very different events. And that was so cool. Like that kept me, kept me engaged throughout my whole time there. And Justin was really good about, you know, taking different people and like having a sort of a different mindset to most restaurants. You know, we did those trips. The, we went to Japan and Hong Kong and that was... You know, for some of those guys, like they never stepped outside of the U.S. or even like the West Coast. And for them to go like take a 14 hour train plane to Hong Kong is insane and so inspiring. And, you know, the mission star was it was like for me, it was a little bit bittersweet because that was my second or third year as Chef de Cuisine. And, mm -hmm. you know, you always think you're crushing it. But then, you know, when you get like something that has like a it's like it's like a, a set thing, you know, it's like you have one mission star. And it's like even though it was our first year and all that, and I think, you know. They're set to do better in the future. It's just like, if I wanted Michelin to come, this is me personally, by the way, not Virginia as a whole, but yeah, I was like, if I, 
I didn't want it to come, but if it was going to come, I wanted to at least like try to hit two. Got it. And so that was like kind of soul crushing for me a little bit. But then it also was motivating for me to like try to get another one. But then, you know, like me personally, because after that mission and star, it started to kind of something else kind of started to like my priorities were a little different now. And I didn't really like that. And this is like, again, this is me personally, not Aubergine. And I think that's when I decided like, I maybe it's time to move, like move on to something else. Because as much as I was enjoying it, Aubergine, and I really loved the team atmosphere. And it was, like, I feel like we were so close and like, we were like working at the most optimal level. We just had a renovation and I was like, I could have gotten anything I wanted. And that's when I was like, you know what, actually I have to go. And like, it's hard to describe that. It's like, people are like, you have everything going for you. It's like, well, that's the point. Like, I, like, I don't want yep. that. Yep. It's like an onwards and upwards kind of kind of moment. When how did Bar Maze just come come to be as a concept? How did how did you get involved in it? And and then maybe talk to to the listener about some learnings that you had going from chef to cuisine to you know being involved this heavily in a project. So Maze was supposed to open early on before the pandemic. So they had a space, they had it all built out, and then the pandemic hit. And it was a project between Justin Park, Tom Park, who are the owners currently. Justin is a head bartender at a pretty famous bar here called Bar of the Apron. It was a joint project between them and a, and then a mutual friend, chef, here. After the pandemic and like all this stuff happening, they kind of split ways. And because of the mutual friend, I was looking for a chef job and I was asking him for advice. And he was like, well, if you want, you can step into this project for me. Just take it over completely. And and then I came, they flew me out here and I just, I met Justin and Tom and they were, at, at the time, I was not interested in working with people that I thought was, so like, you know, at this time, there was a whole abuse the playing whistle thing and all this like all this stuff, right? So I wanted to meet people that were going to support my vision for the environment that I want to create. And I don't even, I, like the restaurant thing didn't even matter at that point. It was just like I don't meet people that actually want to do the right thing. And when I came here and I met Justin and Tom, like I just knew immediately. It's like, yep, these are the guys. And you know, when I saw the space, it was it's very small. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful restaurant, but it's the kitchen is like smaller than a food truck. Wow. It's we have. We have one single door fridge and it's so insane. But, you know, like the cool thing about this too is like, I'm starting to realize how much I can make stuff work and how much that they're willing to make stuff work for me. And that was huge. The transition, you know, the transition was, I was so motivated at this point that like the, the food and stuff, not, not that it was easy or anything, but it was like, it was, it kind of came natural. And then the, you know, like building a team was also kind of came natural. It was it just seemed like all the pieces were kind of fitting. The hardest thing right now is just to like keep improving, I guess. Yeah. But so the whole concept of Maze is that, and I know this has been done in the past, but Justin's like a world-class bartender. And the whole point is that we're going to mix everything. So like Maze is short from the word Japanese, Japanese word Mazeru, which is like to mix, stir, or mingle. So we're like talking about mixing with different cultures, different cuisines, different styles, but also mixing food with the cocktails. So we do a tasting menu. It's all paired with cocktails. It's about five courses, but you get little things before, little things after. And they're not like full-on cocktails. They're built for flavor. Kind of like if you go to like Bar Gen, Yamamoto in, in Japan, it's like that kind of alcohol. And, uh, but like the fun part about this is that for every course I make, I can adjust every little aspect and he can adjust every little, like every little aspect. It's not just wine, you know? It's like, I'm not saying it's not just wine, but you know, wine, you have to kind of pick and choose. And then there are times when you're kind of like, oh, I wish it had a little bit more acid or a little bit more like earthiness. And like, he can do that. You can literally add that, and I can add. It. So it's like it's a really fun dynamic, but it takes way longer to complete that pairing than it does like a typical wine pairing. Because he also has to, he's also working with ingredients, and I'm working with ingredients. So it's like it's fun. It's always like changing, but you can't really see it. You know. You mentioned that word improving. How do you guys 
track that? I mean, is this like you're going to try to elevate the level of service or reach a certain level of profitability where you can order in custom ceramics for every single thing, higher quality ingredients, more trained staff? Like, like there's so many metrics by which people judge improvements on, and I'm a big advocate for this too, but I guess how do you think about it in practical terms? In practical terms, I, I look at it like person by person. We actually have a saying in the kitchen. I'm, I'm sure I got it from somewhere, but it's like, I think it's actually Thomas Keller. It's just gets a little better every day. And we, we say it, yeah, we say it every day. It's like just a little bit better. And if I tell my cooks, hey, like this needs to be like this, or like, you know, when they cook something and like, it'd be better if this was like a little bit more rested. So it's like, you can see that little part right there. And they always say, it'll be better tomorrow, chef. And it's like, that's the mentality I want to have. But even beyond that, like improving for me is not necessarily like restaurant based. So like, I always make it a thing that if a new guy is on the meat station, then I'm rotating to the meats so he can learn this. I'm like, he can learn how to butcher this. He can learn how to work with this. So like, in terms of improving, I'm trying to improve them as well as the restaurant. You know, like I tell, I told you like they, all the guys are from here and they haven't really had that experience. So I'm every day I'm in there, I'm just like, guys, this, this could be a little bit tighter. This could be a little bit you know, cleaner, trim it a little bit more this way. Like it's just like those improvements. And of course, like education, I try to take my staff out to the farms, just like all that stuff. And they know, they know about it more than I do, to be honest. But then, you know, I don't really care about buying expensive ingredients, to be honest, or like nice ingredients. Those help with profitability and it helps us do whatever we want to do. But like just now we found a farm that's growing all of our stuff for us now, which I've always wanted to do. And it's like really good stuff too. Like a lot of the stuff here in Hawaii is shipped from California and I'm just trying to like avoid that. So, you know, we finally found a farm that we, and it's a little bit more expensive, sure, but it's way more worth it. And I think it'd be more worth it for the guests too. So that's an improvement. There's like, it's like all these little things and just keeping track of every little thing, every little improvement at every level. Yeah. You talked a little bit about lifestyle and and the ability to kind of not burn out. So I, so I guess to the person who is potentially making that transition into a place where they're, I mean, like perfect example, like one of my old chef de cuisines is like running half marathons now. It's yeah. great to like see a lifestyle change and, and a genuine level of happiness. And I know it's giving this person more longevity, yeah. not just in their career, but just like health wise. How have you kind of incorporated a little bit of that into what your day to day looks like, how you interact with your team, how you spend your days off? Talk to me about health, man. You know, well, the first thing I think was that, that you reduce the hours. I think that's the first thing. I mean, that comes true of everywhere, right? So, and oh my God, like you have no idea how hard it is to tell your cooks to come in later. They will not do it. it. They, you tell them to come in at one, they will show up at 12. And I'm like, go, go get coffee or something. Like, don't come in. You're not allowed to come in. Like, I will change the menu so you don't have to come in that early and you're not hustling. Like, just don't come in. But like, I'm kind of the same way. Like, I don't, you know, I set up myself in a situation where I can kind of do the work throughout the week instead of just every day is packed, jam-packed. And that lets me, you know, it gives me some time, like I can pick a certain day to just go to the gym, come in later, go home a little early and kind of be, have more freedom with my time. You know, we're in Hawaii, so it's like, it's kind of days off are kind of pretty epic, to be honest. We, we do a lot of like beach cookouts together, which is amazing. Or we, you know, if, if we're all tired, we just go to like a local food land, which is kind of like, like a Safeway. And we just get big bowls of poke and just go to the beach. It's like we have like a really fun family like atmosphere here. I think it's kind of like ingrained the culture. So I never feel like overwhelmed or overworked. And you know the way we set it up too is like we don't have that many cooks, but we have we have enough that if one person needed days off or wanted to go to a concert, that we that we allow for that to happen. Or and in, in this case scenario, it's best for me as a manager is let's say Justin at Bar La is needs help. 
then we have the resources to put that help over there. And so it's like, if you, I don't know if this will work for everywhere, but the way we set it up is so unique in that it allows for a lot of flexibility. And I think flexibility is probably the key thing to make everyone's life a little bit easier, you know? There's none of the, no, you can't have these days off. Unless, you know, like two people are asking for it at the same time. And I think that's so different because like, I certainly was not going to ask for days off wherever. We, and you probably, same thing, right? It was scary yeah, to ask for 100%. days off. When, if someone's listening and, and, they, and they just heard you talk about all of these benefits that you're experiencing, did you land on this in a single day? Did you guys come out of a manager's meeting and you're like, we're going to do this? Was this a result of a bunch of individual experiments? Because I think you sent me this piece from Chef Douglas Keene, who's talking about avoiding dysfunction in his in his organization. So as you think about like reducing hours, potentially having a little bit less complexity, being kinder as a manager, I think the person who is like the opposite of all of these things might look at that and they're like, yeah, these guys are crazy. Like, there's no way that I can, you know, start this. So maybe can you talk a little bit about how you landed on some of these things and then share potential practices that people can take away from this conversation to start to use in their kitchens like tomorrow or yeah, next week? It, it happened over time, but it definitely hit. I learned about, you know, I, the, the kindness thing. So like when I say kindness, like obviously stuff goes out in, in a restaurant and bad things happen or people... They, that certainly like don't live up to the expectation that you have, and that happens. But it's, I learned that it's more about just taking them outside, talking to them, and being real with them, and and just kind of controlling my anger by doing that. I just feel like it was kind of misdirected the way I you know bottled it up. So those things took a long time, but it always was ingrained into my head that there was some level of unfairness between the front of the house and back of the house, especially in terms of pay and fine dining. I always knew that in the back of my mind, but in my head I was thinking, well, I'm going to become a chef owner one day and they're going to have to work for someone. That was what we always said, right? But it's still in the back of my mind. And when I see like, you know, like it's, it's, it's hard to not notice it when your back of the house shows up in the most janky car, barely bit, like going to thrift shops. And then the front of the house is driving in and, Mercedes and BMW and you're like what is going on here you know it just doesn't make sense and so stuff like that I was very adamant when I came to Maze that this was going to change and I, I thought about it for a long time the way we make it work at Maze is that we have less staff and we set it up it. to make it that we could do about 40 covers a night uh, omakase so taste menu with seven people seven including me so six people and it's just all like M does everything everyone runs dishes everyone does the dishes no host and also no phone number so our owner, Tom, if you have questions about reservations or anything, any inquiries, you just email the email. So we have one less person doing phones. And what that does is it kind of allows all that extra money. And we don't have a dishwasher. We clean all our dishes ourselves. Like all that extra money goes into the staff. But also we do like tip share, like very equal. Like everyone is considered a team member, not front of the house, back of the house. Yeah, you have different jobs, but you ultimately everyone does everything. And that makes it so, and this model does not work anywhere else. Not, I'm not saying it doesn't work anywhere else, but it doesn't work for everyone is what I meant. But the way we set it up is like my my prep cooks start at like 60. I mean, we don't really have prep cooks. That's but why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I like, I, and that, was, that was one thing that I was, I was adamant about that to Tom and Justin. I was like, I need to make sure my cooks get paid. Like that's my number one yeah. thing. And then the rest we can work on. Got it. Other experiments, things that you guys have tried or, or maybe things that you see other chefs doing where you're like, I would love for us to be able to do that someday or, or you know, potential resources that you've read, whether it's articles or books or interviews you've listened to where you're like, yeah, that's kind of cool. And I, I we, we should try that. Oh, there's a lot. Actually, one thing I was going to mention was that with that labor thing and the whole paying more, you know, the thing I didn't want, I didn't want to mention was that we were able to do that because I 
also a lot of some of the labor that we've been doing, like making our own bread, is taken out to a local bread shop. Or I, I remember when we first opened, I was making these twills because you know, like for the last two years, it was like twills, like five, six, seven twills. And do you know how long those twills make to have like one cook just make it all day long? And I was like, you know what? I'm we're not this kind of restaurant. I don't need one guy working on a single twill for like an hour and a half. So I started to like think about it in a more I don't know how to like describe the word, but like I started to think like, okay, we're not that kind of restaurant. We can buy good quality stuff, whether it's Monaco shells from Japan or tortilla. I recently started buying tortillas from this local company that he's got a very small operation and he just brings in the corn from Mexico and he's trying to open his own Mexican restaurant. But right now he's just selling at the farmer's market. And I was like, hey, make me, make me some. I'll use it in my snacks. So instead of like making these wheels i had this beautiful tortilla just you know punch it out into little things and it's like people are like whoa this is cool and we get to support a local local business same with bread shop like we serve brioche on the menu and there's no way in that kitchen i was going to make brioche i don't even have a place to store the eggs and flour for it i was thinking about it realistically right like obviously i was making everything bread everything and i was like thinking like okay well the owner of this bakery worked at french laundry and like, he has an amazing background He's in the he's in the Alinea book, and like, am I really gonna make better bread than him? I'm not, and I get to support his business, especially when he goes to a downtime. Like, I get to order a little bit of extra bread. I can put it on the snacks. It's like it's such a good interaction. It's such a and my cooks don't have to come in and make bread for two hours, and we have more space, and we have one, and then over over all this, maybe one less cook, so more money for everybody. It's like stuff like that is. Kind of compounds and makes it kind of overall better for everybody. And you know, maybe like it might be an ego thing to make it in house or whatever. But it's like I was just thinking, like I am not gonna make better bread than someone that does it for a living every single day. And a lot of my guests goes to bread shop. That's what it's called, bread shop, and ask for the brioche, which is so like, which is cool. You know, the listener might be screaming at their headphones right now because that's you and I connected over that piece yep. that I wrote called don't make it in house and and it's true like that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get you on the show today is because I think you reached out and said like I do yeah. this like this is how I run my culinary program is like using a lot of these principles and so if you're curious on going a little bit deeper obviously get in touch with key but then I also did a whole episode on this philosophy of just potentially why don't we see more of this it's called don't make it in-house and i'd highly recommend people check that out after this it'll be linked in the show notes for people i guess on the topic of the restaurant bar in general how do you guys talk about success is it more locations is it again more profitability is it like we found something that really works we want to go for longevity how do you guys talk about that for us like for this specific project i think success for us is just making sure our teams are happy but also kind of conveying that food and cocktail works. And that's our number one thing. The second thing is, it's, it's just like the, you know, the execution of our vision. So what the two things that we want people to feel when they come to Maze is that the food is delicious, the cocktails are delicious, but it pairs really well. And it's done in an environment which is really fun. Like our, our playlist, Tom, our owner made, like people talk about all the time. It's like, this place is so fun. Like, it's like, like I've never heard a playlist like this, but it's like everyone, like by the end of the meal, people are singing and like, just like really like just kind of like into it. The environment is kind of more relaxed. You're right in front of us and kind of like, like a bar, which is why we named it, you know, Bar Maz and not just Maz. Is like, you get to interact with all of us. We're all coming out. And you know, it's like really refreshing, if, especially for people who's been going out to eat all the Mission Star restaurants. They always say like, this is so fun. And that's, that's the, overall, that's our goal is to be fun, but also show that it works cocktail and food and just having an impact in the in the industry here it's like 
that's for me personally, that's like my idea of a success is like we're making an impact. We're serving local farmers, local fishermen, local businesses. And, and this is a very, like, people always say, like, the island is so small. Everybody knows everybody. Like, I just want to do it right by I'm here, especially since I'm new here. And I feel like we're doing that right now. So, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about concept that I certainly got a lot of value from. I know you did too, but I haven't really spent a lot of time digging into how it can potentially apply to someone who doesn't think about this. And it's in relation to getting knowledge and learnings through going out to eat. And so can you maybe speak on the importance of that? Maybe some meals that have had an impact on you. And I think most importantly, how someone who has like grippings of culinary knowledge can go out to eat at places and extract knowledge from those yeah. meals. I hit a certain point in experience where I was like, it actually doesn't make sense for me to stash here yeah. for a day. Like, yeah. I would much rather go in and sit at the bar and order like stuff off of the a la carte menu or like, you know, find someone who will be willing to go in on a tasting menu with me, XYZ. Oh, yeah. There's, there's definitely a huge, huge bonus in that. It's, I feel like if you hit the fundamentals of cooking and you are pretty well adapted to that and you understand how things work on a base level, maybe a little bit more than base level, but like if you just understand how things generally are done at that point, I think eating is the number one, number one learning tool to know what a restaurant is like, because that's the end goal, right? That's, that's the product that you are building and you get to see it. There's been times when like I go to a restaurant and it's like the smallest thing. I'm like, oh my God, this oyster is so freaking cold. How did they do that? Like something so stupid like that for me is life changing. And like, all I can think in my head is like, wow, like, like how did it, did it, come like right away like I don't even know like and it sounds so ridiculous but you know if you go into a restaurant without thinking you're going to judge them just really absorb the the environment absorb what they're, they're trying to do and then you eat these meals and you get to see the vision sometimes it's not even like sometimes it's like maybe you have a dish that's not as good but it sets up for the next dish and when you notice that you're like okay maybe not every one of my dishes has to be a home run maybe there could be a little fillers that sets it up for the next dish and makes a better impact over there like there's so much things you can take away from eating at a restaurant and kind of seeing their vision, see what they care about, also see what they don't care about. Like they don't necessarily care about tablecloths. Well, did that impact my dining? No. Okay, then why do we have tablecloths? It's like, you know, it makes you think. And, you know, if the end goal is that you can open your own restaurant, of course you have to experience every other restaurant. See what you like, what you don't like. See like what they prioritize. You know, it's like, it's such an important thing. And, you know, for me, I, I'm not really well adapted into like, I haven't, I don't make that much like raw fish dishes because like the general idea for me was like every time I go to a restaurant and I order a raw fish dish, it's never that good, especially tasting menu restaurants. And it's like, it's good. It's just not memorable. I never had a raw fish dish. Where I was like, whoa, besides maybe Le Bernard and that one. But, right. and I just wanted to learn like what it takes to make like a good fish dish. So a raw fish. And so I started eating at a lot of sushi places, try to see what textures and stuff they're getting out of it. And it's like, do that. I learned a lot. Yeah. It's just, it's so important that you go out to eat. And I know it's expensive, but you're not making that much money, but it's part of your education, you know? And it's one of those things where like, you're going to have to make those decisions regardless. Yep. Like you're going to yep. be asked, how are we going to do this raw yep. fish thing? And if you're operating from the sense of like an empty shelf, like there's nothing for you to pull from, it's like, you're going to, you're going to fail. And it's not like it's guaranteed you're going to fail, but it's not going to be as good as if you were to have this robust memory set of like, oh yeah, when I was at this place in San Francisco, they did it like this. But then when, weirdly, I, I had this experience in Miami and they did it like this. And then what if I combine the two with this thing that we're getting from our fishermen? And it's like, 
that's that's where the magic yeah. happens and i don't think people give enough credit to that in their careers and they and they they just see it as as what you said is it's like yeah well i don't really want to splurge and spend 135 dollars on this tasting menu when in reality it's like that could be the thing that sets you up for you know getting the chef yeah to and, position and later. another thing is like you know ideas are always bounced around right it's like you don't now i know people say like now you can't make a new dish which i mean i don't know if that's true or not but the thing is like even the idea or the taste that you had in your mind, like you might not remember exactly that way, but let's just say you had this one dish. You don't remember exactly what it was, but everything that was in there, but you remember that taste and you remember that idea. And then you make that dish, but in your own way, with your memory of that taste, because you're like, I, I want that flavor in my mouth and I want to replicate that on my own here. And it turns out, it could, it could turn out completely different, but that, that memory is so important when you're like making a new dish because you have that taste in your like in your memory and you're replicating it that ends up turning different maybe more your style in your dna and like stuff like that is so important when you're making a dish i always got value from this insight that my last chef shared with me which is you learn a little bit of the quality standards Mm -hmm. too so i remember we had this guy who was working with us and he was on pastry station for a little while and the way that we had it set up the pastry station and the cheese station kind of were the same like they would the, the pastry station yep. would do the cheese course is a better way to say it and i just remember that my chef came up to me one day and he was like this guy's never been out to eat at a place and order cheese before like he needs to go order cheese like he said this in passing as i was expediting and he was just like pissed <laughs> off at the guy you know for whatever and it was because he didn't allow the cheese yeah. to temper and it was like a duh kind of kind of kind of moment for for me and my chef my, my chef owner but like to this guy who didn't have experience going out to eat and understanding that like that was a part of again a quality standard to this thing to your point on fish texture you know what i mean like if someone if someone who is a complete novice who has never done a raw fish dish before you know does it with a fish that is not going to have a texture doesn't slice it in a way where it like actually lends to having a good feel on your palate it's going to look amateurish or it's like maybe a better way to say it is like the real ones yeah. will know kind of thing like if you serve this to a guest who has eaten in every single great high-end bar and they all of a sudden come and try your snacks and it's like you don't know how to fry something or you're like the things that you're frying are too oily or you know something it ends up being this real detriment to their experience but if you were to have just gone out to eat a little bit more and have a bit of an understanding on like etiquette things the way different products are treated and presentation insights i think that that can really help yes you know also i think it's important to eat out throughout your career because you also pick up you notice different things you pick up more things as you're growing. So like sushi is actually a good example for me. Like when I first tried like our actual like Japanese omakase style sushi in Japan about two, three years ago, it was like, at that time I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like, I don't even know how they did everything. And then I've only had three experiences like this, like omakase style sushi, but one was about a year ago. And now I know what's on there, but then I'm not really, so I understand a little bit more. I understand what it is, but I don't understand how they did it. And then recently for my birthday, I had another meal. It's so all like very similar format, but and then I start to realize, oh wow, like they do it this way, and now I'm trying to realize because I have more knowledge now, I, I I can see that they do it a little bit differently than other places. Like you should be always growing, and because you're always growing, you notice more things. And it's like three different experiences technically, but same format, same everything, but three different viewpoints because of the because of where I was at in my career. 
it's like it's insane like the amount of little detail that goes into those kind of meals that's the quote right is that no man ever steps in the same river twice because it's like the man changes and the river changes it's like a it's like it's like the same kind of quote there and the other thing that i wanted to share with folks is like go out to eat at the place because the restaurant might not be there the next time you get a chance to go eat there like for everybody who's like oh i've always wanted to go to manresa manresa is on my list i've always wanted to go there it's like it's not gonna be a thing a little bit I had the same thing with, like, I would have loved to have eaten at, like, Quilted yeah. Giraffe. Never got a chance to go. Same with El Bui. Never got to go. You know, like, it's not that restaurants, all restaurants end up failing, mm-hmm. but it's like, just look at the lists. Like, go back and look at a Michelin Guide from 1994. Yeah. It's like, whoa, there's not a lot of these places are still open. It's, you know, when we were dodging and we were, like, going around looking for restaurants that we knew, and, like, even half of those are gone. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's crazy. Boulay, yeah. for example. You know, like, can't go eat there anymore. It's wild. You had this thing that you sent me and I, I want to give you kind of space to, to to go on it for a little while and it's in reference to kyotsuke yeah. knives so can you talk a little bit about that 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 rant i'll post a screenshot on on here on youtube for the kind of the post that you made but can you give a little bit of background there and, and maybe just talk a little bit of, uh, on the topic because I, I i will admit that i'm a little bit out of my depths here to talk about the the meaning behind this. yeah uh, so this is sorry the name of the knife is escaping me it was I actually don't even know how to say it properly. Kirisuke, right? Kirisuke. So, Kirisuke. Yeah, there, there's, there's another. There, there's a way that the, the consonants should be combined that I can't do properly because my Japanese pronunciation isn't correct. But I think most folks will yeah. know what we're talking about. So it's about a knife. It, it looks eerily similar to a samurai sword. And you know, my context of it is obviously a little bit biased because a lot of the places I worked is very Japanese influenced. And right now, I currently live in a place that's very Japanese-influenced. And when and Justin Cogley also is very like Japanese-influenced. So I always own this knife to be a meaning of when you receive the title of executive chef, you are received this knife. And so when you see someone in the kitchen using it, especially in the Japanese kitchen, that's the chef. And, and the, the cool thing about this knife is that you can use it for everything, slicing fish, cutting meat. It's a very hard knife to use. It's one-sided. It's just not built the way that your normal knife is. And so it's very hard to use, and that's the, that's the whole point of it. If you go on any Japanese knife store, they say Kirisuke meant for executive chefs. Maybe it says originally meant for executive chefs, but it does say it. And my thing was, it's kind of like comparing it to, well, first off, like traditionally, if it's for a Japanese chef, and like if you want to pay respects to that culture, I just thought that it would be more meaningful to keep it that way. But also it's kind of like, for me, the way I describe it is like, if you don't earn it, it's kind of like the way I see it is like going into your dojo, wearing a black belt when you're not. And that'd be very disrespectful. Now, when it comes to like social media, because this is where it stemmed from, I saw a YouTuber who I I like. I really like his content, but like he bought a Kirisuki knife to show it off and use it. And I was like, okay, that's where it kind of like, like, I don't feel comfortable about that. I was received a knife when I left Aubergine by Justin Cogley that he bought from Japan. But like, and so like for me, it has like a personal meaning. Like I got this knife. I, I deserved it after like many years in the industry. Now, I'm not saying that people can't use it. Right. But like for me, it holds a certain value, just like a black belt holds a certain value. And it's just like for me, it's like raising all the work you spent to getting it. And, you know, actually, the cool thing about this is posting on Instagram is that I got a lot of responses and some of them were very valid points, like about why we like we shouldn't care. I can't think about it on top of my head. But, yeah, like I just like it's like a really fun conversation to have, honestly. Yeah. That's why I wanted you to bring it up. I, I wanted to kick this ball around with you too because I think I think it's fascinating from from a couple different angles. I mean, like when I hear that, it's like you can't. I mean, I'm sure you can go to a store and just like buy a black belt. But like I did martial arts when I was really young, 
And it was kind of one of those things where, like, even if I really wanted to do the shortcut move of, like, go to the store yeah. and buy a black belt, I couldn't get the same black belt that, like, my instructor would have given yeah. me. Do you know what I mean? Had I reached yeah. that that level. So there wasn't really an option to kind of, like, circumnavigate the the... The, the journey and just like go to the go to the finish line and just buy the the thing which i think is different in this world of crazy e-commerce and japanese importers and you know like you can get whatever yeah. you want you know at any random point in time so that's one difference that i see the other one that is kind of in line with the rant that i go on with like the chef title is like if you take the title and you don't have the skills to back it up like it's going to kind of be one of those things that comes out like the re- that's back to my like the real yeah. ones are going to yeah, know yeah. kind of point and so i guess like what other, I mean, did any of it change your mind or did, did, did like, keep, keep going on it if, if, if there's more no, like, to share No, like, okay, there. so in terms of, it did change my mind. You know, ultimately when I talked to people, yeah. it was kind of like, who cares? Let them do what, the, yeah, like, yeah. like you said, the real ones know. And like, yeah. you know, I guess in terms of social media, I was like, I guess using the black belt analogy again, it's like, well, if you're not a black belt, let's just say you're a brown belt and you are making a YouTube thing on a certain martial art, but you just happen, you just wear the black belt because you don't practice anymore but you're just showing people what to do it's like that's how i thought about it in my head it's like you're doing it under the guise i mean they they first off i don't even think they know that that knife is meant for executive chef but that's why i wanted you to talk about it here because i didn't i didn't know i mean like on this knife rack that i have behind me like there's a couple of like k-tip style knives but they're not they're, they're not single bevel and i don't think they're exactly the style of knife they yeah. were describing because i immediately thought like oh my goodness have i done the same thing like i have have i disrespected this in any way shape or form and i was like well i don't i don't think so but then at the same time it was like it wasn't something that i was even a, a, aware of as you know kind of like a, yeah. a final uh, well, thing that you could get at this i point do know about k-tip knives i was thinking more along the the, yeah. the long inagi almost shaped one is it the one where the tip comes in the reverse you know what i mean because i'm used to it yeah, yeah. Hang on. Give me one second. Because I'm used to right. like this. But the the long, like, Unagi style. Yeah, the long one. Single bevel, yeah. There's a single bevel on it. And is it the one where the where the tip comes the other way? No, no. That's that's the style. Yeah. It's this. Okay. That's what I thought. But again, to, to the point on commerce and people, like, this is a Ninox made for home yep. line. Like, it's at a certain point where it's like, brands probably have these focus groups where they show a bunch of people different knife, like, that's cool. knife styles and people are like oh yeah. i want i want that one you know what i mean and so then they make the knives in this style which is going to be another thing that i wanted to bring up with you where it's like well okay so na- so now what are we to do because it's like there are these knives that are available on the market and they're shaped in this way that to your point are stereotypically reserved for people who have this level of experience and now they're just available for anybody to buy with i mean they were always account. available to buy is this i guess right it was like a, to be honest, it was kind of like a in the moment kind of thing. I was just like, when I saw it, I was like, Got it. huh, yep. which is yep. why I posed it as kind of a question. Yeah. And I, after it. talking to a bunch Got of people it. and all, some of the people actually from Japanese kitchens, they're like, you know, they don't really care. Like, they're like, whatever. Like, mm. if, and they said that their chef does use a K-tip knife, the Tuki style, and none of, them, none of the rest of them do, but like, they couldn't care less. And if they don't care less, then I couldn't care less. Right. It was just like a, I thought it was like a fun in, conversation to have and actually everyone that I talked to was really cool got to see different like perspective on it and yeah it was like a fun little conversation we had there was one top point that I you you had mentioned a couple different times and I want to ask you about it before we get into some rapid fire questions here and it's in regards to the word that you mentioned a couple times nervous and so I guess do you still experience nervousness and if not how did you overcome it and and maybe the most important thing is if there's someone listening who is like guys I suffer from the same thing. 
going into service, I'm nervous. Go, set, setting up on a busy Saturday, I'm nervous. Trying to go ask my executive chef a question about something that yep. I screwed up, I get nervous. Going on a stage, I get nervous. Like when a food critic comes in, I get nervous. I, I, I'm just so nervous all the time. I guess what has been helpful for I you? I literally live on this state of nervousness every day. <laughs> it's, it's like still struggling. Still struggling. And you know, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there's like, I don't think there's any remedy for it. It's just like, you know, at a certain point, Sometimes you think like, well, you're nervous because you care about it, so it's good. But right, yeah, that's what I tell. So people. I'm scared about every service that we go into. I'm scared if the if a fish is not 100%. If you know, if my cooks aren't 100%. Like I'm nervous about every little aspect. Doing events, I get very nervous because you know, and that's when adaptability and like you know, making your station set up perfectly is important. But, you know, you're so nervous about that. Nowadays, I, I'm actually extra nervous to talk to guests. And I think, honestly, wow. I think COVID hit me pretty hard in terms of that human-to-human interaction because something, and I can't trace where it came from, but I, I, when I talk to guests, like, I can't, I get so nervous and I can't connect. Like, and guests, a lot of guests really like it when I come to the table and talk to them. But I, I seriously, and I've, I've actually talked to other chefs about this, and they feel the same way, younger chefs, like, similar to our range. And they're like, yeah, when I go to the table, I'm just like, I'm so awkward and nervous and they can see it. It's like, we're like, we don't know what to say. We, like when they, like when they ask a question, you're like stumbling. And I'm like, why can't I get past this? Like I became so socially awkward, but with my team, I'm fine with everything else. I'm fine. It's just like, I don't know where this came from. And that makes me super nervous every night going into service. I'm like, oh my God, I have to talk to people. I like, there's not much place to hide in Maze. It's so small, but like open the fridge door right before I go out to a guest and just like look into the fridge and be like, okay, calm down, calm down. And I'm just going to talk to people, you know, yep. people that requested to talk right. to me. So it's like, I'm always nervous. I'm always scared every day. I wish I could, I wish it was a remedy for it, but there really isn't. I mean, hopefully it's helpful for the listener to just know that like, they're not the only one oh, yeah. that feels these things. Like even you with your, I mean, we, we, we've been cooking for what, like 13 years yep. now, something like that. And, and, and it's still, you know, something that, that, that ails people. I mean, what really helped me was like, just coming up with a script that you always start off a conversation with. Yeah. You know, because every single, if every single time you go to a table, it's like you're trying to like pay attention to their hair or what jewelry that the person is wearing or what brand of suit that the guy has on. It's just like, yeah. that's exhausting, you know? But if you've ever listened to like the really, it's not sleazy, but like the people who stand there at Costco and give out like, talk about the brand they're so good yeah. at talking to people man because it's just like the volume that they get is just so good and it's like don't make your entire spiel a script but it's like give yourself a couple yeah. of those anchor points you know and this is for the listener you don't have to take my advice but it's like that helped me a lot when i when my chef started to say like hey you need to go start talking to tables because yeah. i had the same thing i was like just freeze up get nervous don't know what to say i'm super <laughs> awkward you know like and that ultimately helped me you yeah. know, get to a good place Let's get into some rapid fire ones. So this is called the Repertoire Podcast. I think most folks will know that the repertoire, your repertoire is this kind of like set of skills that you take with you. When I say that word repertoire and you were to think of like this thing that you take with you always, or if like key had to start back at the beginning, but you knew everything you knew now, what would you say is the most valuable part of your repertoire? The, I would say the adaptability is like, I, I definitely feel like I focus my early career to be very adaptable. And I think Aubergine actually is a place where you learn that very immensely. Some days you have seven of the best chefs in the world come to do an event there and you have to be super adaptable for them. And like, so if I had to just retain one thing is adaptability. It's, it's so important in our industry. Like you can't be rigid. You can't, even even those like top end chefs, like 
as as well, they were able to get there because of their adaptability, of course. But as rigid as they are in their structure and everything, when they come to do events, it shows. That's when it shows. Like they're super adaptable. They make it happen at that level with nothing. And that that kind of stuff is, I think, the most important skill set you could have. I guess if someone's listening, they're like, yeah, I guess. If someone had to take me out of my station or ask me to cook in a new kitchen, I would fall to pieces. Like, are there any things that stand out or maybe things that you teach your cooks on, like, helping to increase their level of adaptability or kind of strengthen that adaptable muscle for them? Oh, it's, you know, it's experience, I think. The only thing I can do is take them out to those places and make them uncomfortable. Like, I certainly got my share of it, aubergine, just constantly working in places, no fire, cooking on the beach for people, like, trying to keep things cold in a hot summer day, like outside like all these things build into your memory bank and the next time you see it you can like kind of or you can even prevent it the next time by being more prepared but like it just you just have to experience it and it's one of those like it's gonna suck in the moment i think that's what one thing that's like uncomfortable about that that skill like building the adaptable skill it's like kind of to your point the only way you can do it is to step out of your comfort zone and literally be in that moment of like oh shoot like we have no heat source right now how are we going to figure that out and in that moment, it's going to suck, but, like, you're going to take that suck and you're going to, like, bring it with you to the next thing so that instead of having it be, oh, my goodness, we don't have a heat source, you're going to look at the environment and you're going to say, hey, guys, there's no heat source here. Like, has anybody thought about that? And you're just going to give yourself a you little bit You know, it's funny because stuff like that sometimes ends up becoming the most epic things. Like, we had a, we yeah, did a yeah, beach yeah. party for one of our events called Rediscovering Coastal Cuisine. And we had, you know, very, very famous chefs come, John Shields, Chris Costell. And we were at the beach and we were cooking and we're like, and it's, it's impossible to bring chairs down to this beach because it's like a private one in Big Sur. And we made chairs out of logs, just, just using kitchen string, just tying it up like crazy. And then we're like, we didn't bring enough ice and they're all melting. So we just threw all the drinks into the, the ocean. We just tied it up and just threw it into the ocean and just kept it there. And the ocean over there is super cold. Like stuff like that, like when, when the chefs came in, they're like, what is happening here? You know, all the fish, we just use like sticks and like put it to the, you know, like what you see in like cartoons, like just like over the fire, just hanging in. Like that was not planned. We just were not prepared. And so we had to adapt. And what ended up happening was the most like epic, like kind of like really cool scene of like this wild chaos happening, but kind of cool, you know, that really like epic things can come out. If you're like, if you can kind of not freak out, take a step back and try to be tactical, try to see what you have and then like make the best out of it. Like something really cool could happen. Believe it or not, I'm actually having Chef John oh, nice. Shields on the show next week. Is there anything that you'd recommend that I ask, ask him about? Or you should ask for some Charlie Trotter you know, stories for that, sure. Yeah. Oh, Charlie Trotter. Okay, got it. Oh, I asked Smith yeah, like sure. a month ago, actually. Yeah, it was, it was so different from where else you could dine. It was like, it was in, it was really, really cool. Yeah. Make sure you subscribe if you aren't subscribed to the podcast so you can catch that interview. So it's a Saturday morning. I call it, you know, maybe it's not Saturday. Maybe it's Sunday, Monday, your first day of your weekend. And you kind of stumble into your kitchen mm-hmm. to make eggs for yourself. Oh, How do you make those up, eggs? For sure. I'm, it's just easier to eat for me. I could just kind of like, yep. out. actually, I have a funny thing. We used to sous vide eggs a lot at, at Maze for the egg yolks. And we had all the egg whites that were, you know, kind of runny. And when I was, like, working out pretty intensely, my cooks thought it was so gross. I used to drink the egg whites that are, like, half-curdled, half, like, milky. It's pure protein. Pure and protein. It's, it doesn't, it's not pleasant. But I was like, I, would, I could just keep a cup of that in my fridge. I could just down it. So fast, so efficient. Kind of gross, but... What's a book that's been particularly impactful for you in your career? And maybe this is management-related or creativity or... or business uh cooking. for sure like the biggest impact that books have me is unreasonable hospitality i mean Cute. i had goosebumps throughout the whole thing it, it was so well written and it was so like to the like to my core 
that it made me rethink a lot of stuff. And Justin Park, the bartender, and I actually read it at the same time. And we were both like, nice. oh my God, I do that. The stuff that he tells you not to do, I'm like, oh, I do that. And like, so it's like, it's ingrained in my mind now. And like, every day I go into work, I'm like, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this. And every time I do it, I catch myself. I'm like, oh, damn it, like I did it. And it's like, it's like all these like little things are just, you're never taught anywhere else. You know, it's, and you, you're not taught management when you're a chef. You're, you just learn it. And also in like, in terms of the way he does it, like you're not taught that way. It's like, the way we're taught is like, the chef's word is absolute. That's it. Even if it's wrong, it's absolute. And that's like a double-edged sword for sure. But it's such a different perspective. And if you want to make change, especially like, like I want to make change in the, in the restaurant culture in my kitchen. So it was so impactful. You somehow get a call right after this interview that you've just won an all-expenses-paid trip to eat at your dream restaurant. And when you get there, there's someone you've always wanted to talk with waiting to have dinner with you. What is the restaurant and who Ooh. is that person? I've always wanted to go to Exabari because it's just the place that I think is the kind of restaurant I want to go to. I really got it because like we mentioned, it might not be there, so I have to go. But Anthony Bourdain, for sure, this is my number one. Like yep. I was, I felt like I lost a friend when he, and yeah, I don't know him at all, but I feel like I lost a friend when he passed away. So, and he has, I'm sure he has incredible stories. Is that what you would hope to talk to him about? Just like get, get cool, yeah, cool stories, stories. And then like from just him? his perspective on the industry, like in culture and life, where it's headed. You mentioned, well, this is an interesting one. I, I call this the meta job interview question. So you sit a new cook down, they maybe just trailed with you for the day. And after the shift, you sit down and you know, have a one-on-one conversation with them to try to gauge whether or not they'd be a good fit. You ask them a question, but instead of the answer to the question, you're maybe looking at how they answer the question. Are there any things that you look for in the way that people carry themselves, how they answer questions? Maybe you can give an example of some que- questions that you ask during interviews that help you get a better sense of who someone is and if they're a good candidate to work with you. You know, I, I certainly don't look for a certain thing. If they're nervous, it's okay. If they're Actually, probably better if they're if they're confident. That's okay too. The the number one thing I I focus on is how well they work with others. So if I give them a situation, if I was like, if you were really busy and someone else next to you was also busy, like how how would you how would you act? And you know, it's like such a that's kind of like a such a simple answer. It's like, well, I try to do my best and I will help the other guy. But like sometimes when you ask questions that are kind of very simple like that, you can kind of really gauge what their mindset is. You can see how far or how far along in the industry there are they've been because it's like you could kind of see it going through their head like well really i would do this but you know like like stuff right. like that like it's the way they talk about certain situations i think is very important because i think team mentality is everything huge last question key before we let people go here and figure out where to ask questions and ultimately book a, a seat with you guys is and you might have said this already but what do you think i always ask my guests what do you think chefs can be doing better to help the next generation i guess is there anything else that you are thinking about things that you've seen or maybe parting pieces of advice for folks you know, i think like chefs should definitely try to work on different aspects of their life a little bit more i felt very i felt like i missed out on a big part of my life or this reading i know chefs tra- are well traveled and they eat out a lot they do but this like certain aspects like working on self-improvement reading just in general or fitness health like there's so many things that i think maybe they could do internally first before they go out and try to change the restaurant or the kitchen that you run like sometimes stuff like that that you do makes an impact on the rest of the team for a different reason like i know certain chefs who had a baby and their priorities changed and they became way nicer chefs it's like because they're because they had to change 
and stuff like that is like yeah like they could be doing better by being better themselves i guess that's huge where do you want people to go either follow you get in touch follow the follow the restaurant and and just we'll leave, we'll leave everything in the show notes but i guess tell yeah you can always ask me any questions on instagram i'm pretty good i'm good at responding just not in time it's it's kilos k-i-l-o-l-s and then you can follow Barmaz at Barmaz. Yeah, I mean, we're I'm very open to questions and any inquiries that people ask. Dude, it's awesome to see see you just in general and and to catch yeah. up in this kind of format. Like we should we should definitely do a follow up. And it's just awesome to see your. Yeah, it's really so fun to see like to how our careers started and then went very different ways from what we envisioned ourselves at this time, right? And we're both like trying to make our own impact. I think in in our own way, and I think that that's probably the most interesting thing as you and I before the mics turned on we were talking about like the people who yeah. we know that were cooking yeah. and then all of a sudden just aren't and it's not to talk bad about them in any way shape or form I think career transition is fine I just think that like I look at you as I look to you as one of the good ones who like didn't go down the maniacal chef just going for the stars type of you know like there hasn't been an yeah. article about Ki Chung do you know what I mean like that that type of you know mentality is reassuring and, and it shows to me that the change that we want to see is possible in a world where I think everybody else. Yeah. Is really and I feel like a lot of our friends did leave so. because they noticed that it was not a good place to be. Yeah. Sustainable. And like totally. we talked about, totally. You and I almost quit. And again, it's not, you and I almost quit. You and I yeah. almost changed yeah, yeah. profession so many times. Yeah. Even yep. the hardest yep. ones, like, yep. like we were pretty young and ambitious, but it still hit us. So you need to change. Yep. Yep. hundred percent. Yeah, of course. Well, thanks Thank again, man. It was great to have you on. Well, well, here we are together again at the end of another episode of the Repertoire Podcast. If this is your first time listening, this is a show for hospitality creators who want to think better, increase their performance, and believe that it's possible to take lessons from what others have already learned. I am your host, Justin Kana, and if you're new here, I'd like to personally welcome you to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Friendly heads up to check out the show notes inside of the description of this podcast if you want to check out previous guests, links to specifics that got brought up in this episode, as well as other helpful content that we create and share here online because everything we do is focused on helping you along your journey. If you don't have a ton of time, the best place to start is with some value sent straight to your inbox every single week. It's called the Repertoire Newsletter, where we share knowledge on sharpening your skills, asymmetric upside, and exploring the industry beyond the status quo. If you subscribe, we'll keep you up to date on trends that are shaping the hospitality creator ecosystem. We'll share discounts on gear that we find, as well as content that we've been producing ourselves and helpful articles that we've already read and decided are worth your time. Last up, if you want to connect with other other industry professionals in the Repertoire Pro community. You want to check out courses like Total Station Domination or download free tools that we've created. You can learn more at joinrepertoire.com. That's J-O-I-N-R-E-P-E-R-T-O-I-R-E.com. The only ask from me is that if you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate a review of this show on Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify to help the podcast universe know that people like us like shows like this. Regardless, I'll see you in the next episode. My name is Justin Kana, and I hope you have a good one.